Welcome to our sermon podcast here at City of Light Anglican Church. We are a new church in Aurora, Illinois, finding a new day in Jesus. We want to see the light of Jesus rise and shine in our hearts, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Father Trevor. As I was uh, preparing and praying through this passage, I was reminded of another uh, kingly procession, of another uh, king who saved a kingdom. Uh, The kingdom had been overrun uh, through a coup d'etat. Someone had taken over violently the government and brought with him um, a a oppressive regime and uh, was, you know, brutalizing the country, the people. It was uh, a terrible state of affairs. And then um, out of the ashes rose uh, the heir to the throne that, that folks had thought had died. Um, and as uh, Simba came home from his Akuna Matata exile back to Pride Rock, he defeated his uncle Scar and the hyena henchmen and freed the nation and brought back the circle of life that had been destroyed. And after that glorious defeat, um, his uh, priestly baboon pointed him, Rafiki pointed him up to the, the pinnacle of Pride Rock to, to ascend in a procession, a kingly procession, uh, recalling the procession that happened at his birth when he was anointed as king. And uh, there at the top, he did a kingly action, something that uh, signifies his authority and his kingship. He roared. It wasn't a coronation, it was a Auroronation. I bet you didn't realize how liturgical Lion King is. But Simba did what kings are supposed to do. He saved his people. He did not turn his back on them. He, he, he returned and he, he saved them. That is the job of a king. In fact, we read uh, in the Bible when the nation of Israel wanted a king, um, this is why they wanted a king. Listen to what they said. They said, we want a king over us, a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Kings save. That's their job description. Kings save. They never turn their back on you. They always fight for you. And what we see in this passage of Jesus's uh, entry into Jerusalem is all of the liturgical symbols and trappings of king returning from victory. Now, it doesn't look like that way to us at first. You know, people are throwing coats on the ground. They're waving broken off parts of trees. He's riding a colt, a foal of a donkey. That's not how we would picture a king coming in glory or coming in victory, right? Um, When we see a king coming in, we want him to be riding a white horse and trumpets playing. But in Scripture, in this culture, in the ancient Near East, uh, a couple thousand years ago, coats were for kings. You would put a coat down so they wouldn't have to step on the dirty ground. This is a way of honoring a king. Colts, the foals of donkeys, colts are for kings. There's this story um, in the uh, first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, where King David, the the greatest king of Israel, is about to die, and he's going to hand over the kingdom to his son Solomon. And so he says, 
take Solomon, put him on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and process him through the streets and anoint him as king. Coats and colts are for kings. So are palms and parades. There's this uh, psalm, uh, Psalm 118, that's all a, a procession of the victorious king into Jerusalem through the streets to the temple. And the people of Israel would read this psalm regularly, uh, sometimes weekly. But the main place they read this psalm was during the Feast of Tents. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It was a special once-a-year feast where they remembered that God had brought them out of Egypt where they lived for generations as slaves. And God brought them into the desert where they lived in tents and then into the promised land. So for a week, they would go camping, the whole nation, and they would live in tents to remember that. And they would sing Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 describes a procession of the king to the temple and everyone is waving palms. Do you know what they say in this Psalm 118 procession? Hosanna, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Jesus starts to ride into Jerusalem, his disciples start the singing. And what song do they sing? They sing the song of the king coming to save Israel. And they pick up their palms. They, they reenact this uh, festal celebration because Jesus is king. The disciples know it. Jesus knows it. He's not sitting on a donkey to be humble and, and mild. He is declaring himself king. Coats and colts and palms and parades are for kings. And so Jesus comes as the king. Hosanna, Lord, king, save us, they cried. And it's important to notice how strong the kingly language is that Jesus is declaring himself king, that the disciples are declaring him king, that the whole city joins in and says, king, save us, because it makes this turn that's about to happen that much starker, that much more intense, that they go from a coronation to a crucifixion, that we go from a parade in palms to Jesus' passion, that the crowd shouts, Hosanna, one minute, and crucify him the next. It is a stunning turn of events that happens in a literal week. Maybe you felt the liturgical whiplash this morning of declaring Jesus king and waving our palms and then reading the gospel passage and speaking the words, crucify him. Do you feel how jarring that was? The church wants us to feel that. This turn of events Everyone turns on Jesus. His procession and parade names him as king, but in the Passion reading, just a few verses later, a few chapters later, we read that Pilate puts a sign above Jesus that says, King of the Jews. And all the soldiers, what did they say to taunt him? Save yourself if you're king. That's what a king does. King's supposed to save yourself, save, save all of us. Then what do the religious authorities say? How do they jeer at Jesus? You've saved others, supposedly. Save yourself. Not much of a king now, are you?
the authorities turn on Jesus, the crowd, the public opinion turns on Jesus. Even his disciples turn on Jesus. And Peter, who for three years had traveled with Jesus and who once said, Jesus, you are the chosen one of God, the king to lead Israel, now says, I don't even know who that guy is. Everyone turns on Jesus. Why? Why this huge reversal? Here's what I think one of the reasons might have been. The crowd said, save us, king. Hosanna, save us. They all had different ideas of what they wanted Jesus to save them from. One of the most present and um, most in the forefront of their minds was that they were being occupied by Rome. They were not a free nation. They were being occupied and oppressed. Taxes were heavy. They were being oppressed by a religious system that was uh, uh, not always uh, gracious to the poor and all of the sacrifices they had to make. They were being, they were suffering. They were full of pain and full of fear. And they're like, hey, this guy could save us. They all had their different things they wanted him to save them from. And Jerusalem that week must have felt like uh, an election cycle. It, there must have been like a political rally sort of environment of everyone being like, is Jesus going to save me and what I think is wrong with the country? Is he going to fix this? It's not an election, though. For them, it's literally insurrection. They're talking about overthrowing a government. You can imagine the slogans. Save us, king. A political revolution is coming. Jesus for Israel. Make Israel great again. Hosanna, save us, king. Bring us peace. And what does Jesus do in Luke 13 or 18 after the procession? We didn't read this. This starts in verse 41, immediately after what we read. When he saw the city, he wept over it. In the midst of this procession, Jesus starts crying. Why? Would that you, even you, have known on this day the things that make for peace? If only you knew Jerusalem, what would bring you peace? You have all of these ideas of what you think you need saved from. If only you knew what you really need saved from. If only you knew what the root of the issue is. It's not the Roman occupation. It's not the religious. It's not the ruling class. It's not the, if only you knew what the root of the problem is. And he says, you missed the day of your visitation. You'll miss it. And Jerusalem missed it. They say, Jesus, after a week of hearing you teach in Jerusalem, it's clear that you're not going to try to overthrow the government. Sounds like you can't help us. How about that Barabbas guy? At least he killed a couple people fighting for us. Give us that zealot. We want him. Maybe he can lead us. Maybe he's the kind of king that we want. And for years, Israel would do this till in the year 66, they finally had enough folks amassed behind this zealot movement that they actually uh, expelled the Roman occupying force from the city in what's now called the Jewish-Roman War. And Rome comes back and they crush the rebellion. 
And a historian, a, a Hebrew named Josephus, was there, and he watched it. And he said they didn't leave a stone unturned. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the city. They killed, in what some people call the first century Holocaust, over a million Jews. And Jesus predicts it. The days will come when your enemies will surround you. That's how Rome broke them. They sieged them until they had no food. Tear you down to the ground, you and your children will within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you. They missed the day of their visitation. They missed the one who could have really saved them. We do this too, don't we? We want him to save us from the things that we want him to save us from. We have the pain in our lives that feels so close to us. That situation that we can't figure out. Jesus, save me from that. Save me from suffering. Save me from fear. Save me from whatever hard situation I'm in. Jesus cares so much about the hard situations we're in. But he knows that they are a result of something deeper. That he came not just to save us from our situation, but to save us from a separation. A separation from our God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If only you knew this day what would bring you peace. We were made to live in peace with God. We were made to live in peace with one another. We were made to live in peace with our whole world, with each other, with the created order. We were made to live in peace and we turned away from it. We walked away from God and since then, sin has been piling up like heaps of trash. And sin has so infested every part of our lives that we can't even see it all anymore. It just keeps piling up like that garbage can in your kitchen that you keep forgetting to take out. And pretty soon, after generation and generation after generation, we realize that, oh my goodness, my family house, it doesn't just have trash in it. It's actually built on trash. Some of these walls are made out of trash. And we look at our cities, and we realize, wow, there's just not trash in the streets. Some of the streets are made of trash. Some of these skyscrapers are built out of trash. It's out of garbage. We look at our world, and we're like, the foundation of our world has been covered in garbage. And Jesus comes and we say, hey, Jesus, could you help us out? Could you take out the trash in our kitchen? It's overflowing. He says, I don't want to just save you from that situation you're in. I've got to get to the heart of the issue. I've got to get to the root of the problem. And it's not your situation. It's your separation from God. And Jesus came to heal that separation. That's what he came to save us from. He loves us too much to just save us from the thing that's really hard right now. He loves us too much to make things a little easier now, but terribly harder later. He doesn't care just about our current pain. He cares about our current pain. He's more concerned with our purification. He doesn't care just about our death. He cares about our death. He cares about our destiny. He wants to get to the heart, the root of the problem, our separation from God. And he does it by taking on 
every single painful, sinful thing in your situation, every sin that you've ever done to make your life worse, he takes it on. Every sin that's ever been done against you, every person that's ever hurt you, everything that's ever damaged and broken you, he takes it on. Everything in our world, every system that perpetuates injustice, every occupying empire, everything Rome did to hurt Israel, he took that on. Everything any oppressive system does to hurt another, he takes it on. He doesn't turn away from it. When everyone else turns away from him, he doesn't turn away from it. We turn away from Jesus and we say, I don't want you, you, you don't, I want you to save my surface level thing. No, I, I'm not interested in that. And, and we say, crucify you. That's what we say when we turn away from him. That's what sends him to the cross. But he goes anyway. Every reality of our situation, he faces it, he destroys it so that he can fix our separation. It's our turning from him that sends him to the cross. It's our turning from him that says crucify him. But he never, he never turns from us. He never turns from you. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. With his last breath, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They don't know what will bring them peace. But he did. He knew his death would bring us peace with God. So he never turned away from that. Into Jerusalem, he marches. To his trial, where he's wrongfully accused, he marches. To the place of the skull, he marches. Onto the cross, to his death, with no shadow of turning. He never turned from us so that he could invite us to turn back to him. We were a part of that crowd on Palm Sunday, that fickle crowd, and on Good Friday that went from Hosanna to crucify him. We were a part of that. That's our story. And the church puts this here together on this day of Palm Sunday that it's been celebrating since the third century. It puts that together for us so that we know we're part of it. But because Jesus didn't turn, he invites us to be part of another procession. He invites us to be part of another crowd, a crowd that we read about in Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold, a great crowd that no one could even count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Where are they standing? Before the throne of the king. Before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus, who died for us. They're clothed in white robes. They're no longer marked by saying, crucify him. They're marked by Jesus' death. And what do they have in their hands in that great scene of heaven that will be? Palms. Palm branches in their hand, singing, Hosanna. Salvation belongs to our God. 
who sits on the throne. Though we have turned away from him, he has never for a moment turned away from us. And he invites us to take up our palm branches again. He hands them to us with his nail-scarred hands. He washes the guilt off of our hands. If we will say, Hosanna, if we will say, Jesus, save us. If we will say, we know that the problem is separation from you, God. Come heal that separation and come start to redeem and restore all of my situation. Jesus invites us to say, Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to this podcast from City of Light Anglican Church. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at cityoflightanglican.org. And now, may the light of Jesus scatter the darkness from before your path.